Welcome to another episode of the Square and Compass podcast. Tonight's guest, or today's guest, we're recording this during the day, is worshipful brother Rob Moore, who I haven't had the chance to see uh, nearly as often as normal, because you've been a guest here at the Masonic Temple of Windsor on uh, more than a few occasions, but welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brother Cameron. Yeah, you are the Worshipful Master of Zion Lodge, your mother lodge, which I definitely want to talk about, um, you know, because the history of Zion Lodge, I mean, for anybody who knows, right, when your lodge is number one, named number one uh, on the chart, you know, there's some history there uh, to talk about. But also your involvement with the Detroit Masonic Temple is something I really want to want to discuss and get into. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Yeah so, um, yeah, so Zion Lodge, um, which I currently preside over, I'm doing my second year in the East right now. Um, we kind of, my lodge uh, was gracious enough to kind of give me a mulligan from last year because of uh, circumstances. But, um, but yeah, Zion Lodge um, is the oldest uh, Masonic body in the state of Michigan, one of the oldest in the country, uh, the uh, oldest Masonic body west of the Allegheny Mountain. Um, it was originally, uh, char- excuse me, warranted rather um, by the Provincial Grand Lodge of New York back on April 27th, 1764. Uh, how it came about in the uh, early days of Detroit. Uh, this is back when this was still Fort Detroit. Um, the British uh, during the um, Seven Years' War had uh, taken over uh, Fort Detroit from the French four years prior to that. Uh, the occupying uh, British Army unit was the uh, 60th Regiment of Foot, and most of the uh, Army officers in that unit were Masons. Um, most of them were uh, members of lodges in New Hampshire or New York or mm-hmm. Montreal. And Detroit at that time was uh, very much a wilderness. Um, it was kind of like a wilderness outpost. And uh, going back east to go to lodge mm-hmm. really wasn't an option. So they petitioned the uh, Provincial Grand Lodge of New York to start a lodge here. They did. Um, the lodge wasn't around in Detroit for a very long. Uh, the unit got transferred elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it kind of went dormant for a time. Then it picked up again in 1794. Uh, this time it was under the uh, Grand Lodge of Quebec or the uh, Grand Lodge mm-hmm. of uh, Upper Canada. Uh, so uh, that was Zion Lodge mm-hmm. number 10. Uh, that was around until 1806 uh, when we affiliated with the Grand Lodge of New York again. Uh, then in uh, 1826, uh, there was when the first Grand Lodge of Michigan was started. That Grand Lodge was not around for very long. Uh, it was started in 1826, and three years later, uh, during uh, mm-hmm. during the Morgan Affair, during the uh, anti-Masonic agitation, and it affected Michigan uh, pretty hard uh, because we had a lot of uh, influx of immigrants from New York. New York uh, being a hotbed at that time of anti-Masonic activity, uh, they kind of brought their anti-Masonic prejudices with them. So uh, Grand Master Lewis Cass made the decision out of the safety of the members to shut down that uh, Grand Lodge. Uh, mm-hmm. at, the, at the time, it was uh, assumed to have been temporary, but it lasted until the 1840s. And it uh, wasn't until 1845 mm-hmm. that uh, the second Grand Lodge of Michigan came about. And uh, that's the charter we're still working under today. Uh, so we've had a total of, uh, we've had several ju- different jurisdictions, a couple of different charters, but, uh, the lodge itself is still cur- current form. So it's, uh, it is just such a historical, it's such an important part of, I was going to say Michigan history, but really, you know, you could argue it's such an important part of American history, kind of it's, it's growth and it's, it, it really does mirror the kind of growth and development of the United States and the changes that it's went through are similar to the changes the United States went through over the years. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, and it's interesting too, when people think of like the older lodges uh, from, the, uh, from the 18th century, they often think uh, justifiably so of uh, like, you know, Massachusetts, Virginia, Pennsylvania and whatnot. They don't really consider uh, like the Midwest or Michigan, uh, but uh, yes, definitely. Um, because uh, Zion Lodge is the second oldest um, 
extant institution in the city of Detroit. The only one older than us is uh, St. Anne's Basilica. They were founded in 1701, the same year that Detroit was founded. But uh, yeah, basically the uh, the early Lodge roster was essentially kind of a who's who of um, the primary movers and shakers that uh, fomented the development of uh, uh, Southeast Michigan and Michigan in general. Um, uh, business leaders, politicians, uh, early judges, uh, people that were essential uh, to the development of uh, Michigan history mm-hmm. and uh, that of the Midwest in general as well. So it uh, it did deeply uh, follow along those patterns. You know, I have really been trying, uh, and I'll put some links up in, in the corner, with some of my, my videos and podcasts to emphasize the, the importance of Freemasonry, you know, outside of Masons themselves. Uh, and I don't think, you know, the, the emphasis really has been on Masonic temples, not only as being places of, you know, a Masonic home, but really a community home, a place where a community can congregate, even if they are not Masons, even if they have no connection themselves to the craft, many places people have a connection to their local masonic temple uh, you know here in windsor uh it, our temple being home to you know countless weddings and dances and receptions and concerts over the years but i don't know if any masonic temple better illustrates the connection between freemasonry a masonic temple and its community uh, more so than the detroit masonic temple it's just such a it's just such a valuable part of Detroit outside of its Masonic services, just what it provides to the community as a whole. Can you talk a bit about that and also what you do at the Masonic Temple and your connection to it? Okay. Uh, yeah, the Detroit Masonic Temple, uh, when it was initially designed uh, back in the 20s, uh, the idea was just given it sheer enormity in terms of size and scope. They obviously, first and foremost, uh, it was a building uh, built by Masons, uh, for Masons, but they knew that uh, it was going to it was going to need more than that, uh, not just to sustain itself, but uh, to kind of uh, remain a part of the overall fabric of uh, the city of Detroit, the surrounding region. So it does, uh, they designed it uh, in terms of uh, community and civic uses as well. In fact, um, several areas of the temple, uh, the ballroom areas on the uh, basement level and the sub-basement levels were designed more for public activity uh, with the Masonic activity kind of being like a, kind of like an ancillary um, use for those areas uh the theater spaces as well uh we have two uh, very large theater spaces one seats uh, 4,404 the other seats 1,652 and those were designed uh, primarily uh more for uh, public uses as well so they they realized that this was um going to need more than just Masonic use. And uh, they wanted to have it uh, be like a part of the enduring landscape of uh, community life in Southeast Michigan. So um, my roles at the temple are uh, several. I wear a few different hats. Um, The main one, actually the two main ones, excuse me. um, I am the chief docent uh, at the Detroit Masonic Temple. And what my job duties there specifically entail is that it's uh, my responsibility to uh, coordinate and uh, schedule and confer, uh, excuse me, confer the various tours that we do at the temple. Uh, so essentially what we do is we have several public tours per month, typically. Um, those are regular tours that focus primarily on the historical, the architectural, the Masonic aspects of the world's largest Masonic building. And uh, we also have a couple uh, behind the scenes tours that uh, focus uh, specifically on the uh, on the maintenance, uh, the infrastructure, the engineering aspects, uh, several of the unfinished areas that we were not able to show on regular tours. Those are a lot of fun. Um, also, it's my job basically to kind of um, be the face, be the public face of the temple, so to speak, uh, for, uh, for interviews such as what we're doing right now. Uh, for uh, any time anyone has like an inquiry on the temple, wants a, sometimes their media inquiries, sometimes some more research inquiries uh, when people want to know more about that. Uh, I usually the one they go to for information on that. Um, the other one I do is uh, executive director of the Detroit Masonic Temple Library Archive and Research Center. Um, the library uh, has been around in one form or another since 1882. 
Um, originally, it kind of operated uh, somewhat like uh, along the lines of a Masonic Temple Association in which it had representation from each one of the Masonic bodies in the city of Detroit that kind of formed a board and they appointed a director. It um, had that format for a while, but uh, as uh, currently we are, we're an independent 501c3 corporation. So we have a very unique relationship uh, with the temple as a whole. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, as you might infer, a lot of the um, a lot of the research and a lot of the archival uh, responsibilities at the temple. Um, we uh, occupy um, the western half of the fourth floor of the temple, so we have uh, roughly around uh, 2,000 square feet within a 550,000 square foot building uh, to ourselves uh, that occupies the Egyptian lodge room, uh, which is the one lodge room in the building that is still dedicated purely towards Masonic purposes. Uh, what happened was um, back in the mid 2000s as uh, the temple uh, was being used more and more for public usages, specifically the lodge rooms, uh, rather than having to go to Grand Lodge and get a dispensation each and every time, which was kind of time consuming for all concerned, uh, a kind of a deal was struck where they would kind of do a, a blanket on dedication of the lodge spaces with the compromise being that one, lodge room would be truly retained for Masonic purposes, which is the Egyptian room, which is kind of apropos for a Masonic library. So it worked out for all concerned. Um, so yeah, basically we have uh, archival um, items uh, going back uh, to the uh, early 1800s. We have uh, thousands of items. Uh, many of them are books. Many of them are uh, Masonic paraphernalia and ephemera and whatnot, regalia. Uh, we also have quite a few items related to Detroit history itself. Uh, so uh, we're kind of, a, we're in some respects, kind of a newer, older organization. Uh, we've been around in our current form since 2016. Uh, that's, uh, that's when I took over. Uh, that's when we went ahead and kind of got our 501c3 back on track. It had lapsed for a little bit, but uh, we're, we're back. We're, we're in full force now. So the idea is that uh, we are trying to preserve and maintain uh, the legacy of this uh, Masonic monument and uh, try to um, kind of become a first-class research facility in a first-class building. That, you, tell me a bit about the, the challenges of the archival process. You know, I've... We, we've been discussing it at the Windsor Masonic Temple, some of the brothers, um, uh, and also I had the chief archivist for the city of Windsor uh, on the podcast, uh, Michael Fish, before. Um, you know, the, you know the, the challenges of both dealing with, you know, documents that, you know, 100, 200 years old and trying to preserve those. And also, you know, the current challenges around electronic documentation about trying to not only preserve those but make sure they're formatted properly so they can be accessed down the line. I mean, are you guys looking at things like, um, uh, you know, scanning your your older documents or I guess just just I can only imagine the challenges of trying to maintain and archive these documents, some of which are, you know, hundreds of years old. Yeah, it, it certainly is a challenge. And um, from our end, uh, the the library here at the temple was kind of a, kind of a dumping ground of sorts uh, for years. Uh, people, when they didn't want to throw stuff out or they didn't know what to do with it, would just kind of like uh, drop it at the doorstep and hope for the best. So we had to spend uh, quite a while kind of uh, sifting through everything and determining what we were going to keep and what we weren't going to keep because one of the challenges we face is that, uh, well, it wasn't designed as a library space. It was for many years a laundry space. And uh, we've been able to make it work for the most part. Uh, we've kind of had to like repurpose several of the uh, ante rooms and whatnot more towards storage space. We've uh, kind of had to play Tetris, so to speak, with uh, some of the stuff we have to kind of come up with uh, adequate storage space. And um, one good thing that uh, works in our benefit is that we have a great relationship with the uh, Grand Lodge uh, Library in Grand Rapids. Uh, the Michigan Masonic Museum and Library, uh, Brother Dirk Hughes does a phenomenal job over there. and uh, We have a great relationship. So we, uh, we make uh, at least quarterly trips out there with some of the stuff that uh, should be preserved. We just don't have the in-house space and or resources to do it. So it works out well for everyone. Um, as far as some of the older archival stuff that uh, it has been a challenge uh, specifically because we do have... Um, 
We do have a great um, in-house archivist and uh, curator who does, uh, who actually is specifically trained for that, Brother Spencer Stevenson. Uh, so he's been doing a great job with some of our stuff. Uh, but the issue is, um, as far as, again, space, I mean, we need to make sure that we have like a proper hermetically sealed space for this. And again, having to deal with the challenges of uh, the space that we have in terms of coming up with, uh, say, like climate control. That's a bit of an issue with our building because the building does get quite warm in the summer. So there's certain stuff that just we really shouldn't be storing there. So we're dealing with that. Uh, materials, obviously, we need to have like things like acid-free paper. I mean, we need, to, we need to have like specific storage vaults for some of the stuff. That um, that obviously is a financial issue. We we do all right, uh, but again, if we had more, frankly, if we had more money and if we had more staffing, we'd be a little further along with that aspect. But um, we do the best we can. Uh, obviously, we store uh, specifically certain items that should be stored separately. Uh, we do have some archival methods for dealing with that, uh, but uh, some of the things that, uh, as far as like restoration and renovation, we we have to go with professionals, obviously. So, I uh, I do really like this story, so um, I'm hoping you can talk a bit about it because I think it goes to what I was talking about earlier about the value of a Masonic temple to the community at large. Um, your, your Masonic auditorium uh, is not named after uh, a Mason, but nonetheless is named after somebody who is important or who has a connection to the Masonic temple and his family does. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh yeah, uh, that would be the, uh, that would be the uh, smaller of the two theaters, uh, the Jack White uh, Theater. Now that's got an interesting history. Uh, that one was originally called the Scottish Rite Cathedral. Uh, that was specifically uh, built uh, for, uh, at the time, the Valley of Detroit, uh, when they were located within the Detroit Masonic Temple. They needed uh, a larger space uh, to perform the reunions, but not too large of an overwhelming space. So what they did is they designed kind of a, um, kind of a mid-sized theater, so to speak, with uh, just over 1,600 seats. Uh, that is in the uh, traditional Gothic style in terms of architecture. Uh, they wanted to keep sort of medieval look and feel with that, um, with the uh, 32nd degree of the Scottish Rite taking place in a castle with the medieval setting. Um, the lobby too, um, outside the theater, so to speak, is uh, very much in line with an overall like Gothic architectural style. Um, what had happened in terms of uh, the naming of that is um, basically what happened in the, um, in the mid 2000s, uh, the early 2010s is, um, I'll, I'll discuss the, to the length that I'm able to discuss publicly. Um, the temple at the time entered into a contract with a uh, entertainment operator. Uh, this, uh, they promised certain things that frankly, they just didn't fully deliver on. And they left the deal, uh, left the temple holding the bag in terms of um, employee information or excuse me, employee revenue that still had to be paid in terms of back property taxes that they were going to pay. Uh, so we were also with a double whammy at the time because the uh, the county reduced the amount of time that you could float back taxes from five years to two. We had a payment plan in place. Uh, we made a down payment on the back taxes. Um, uh, but Jack White um, heard about all this and uh, Jack has uh, an affinity for the building. Uh, the story goes is that uh, when his mother first moved to Detroit, uh, as a single mother, she had a difficult time finding employment. The temple employed her as an usher for many years. In fact, um, it might be a story. It might actually be out there. Supposedly, there's a photo out there somewhere of the head usher of the temple at the time holding Jack White when he was a baby. So hopefully one day we come across it. But um, but what had happened was is that um, Jack had played there many times. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and yeah, and he also had connections there musically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's played there many times. Uh, solo acts. Uh, he's played as several bands from the White Stripes, uh, the Dead Weather, the Rankin Tours. Uh, he's uh, actually the last time his big show at uh, Little Cedars Arena. Uh, he was practicing um, in that theater for over a week. And uh, we had to keep it really quiet. We couldn't say anything because, you know, we didn't want people showing up and trying to bother him. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. So we were listening to him practice the whole week. But uh, but no, and he's um, 
he has a great affinity for that building, uh, both musically, you know, aesthetically, personally. Uh, so that what happened was, is that um, back in uh, the summer of 2014, he showed up at the back reception desk and, you know, just he didn't make a big fanfare out of it. He said, you know, I, I understand that, uh, that the temple is going through a little bit difficult time right now. Uh, you helped out my family in, in a time of need, and now I'd like to kind of repay the favor. And we told him, it's like, you know, you don't have to do this. I mean, we certainly appreciate the gesture, but I mean, are, are you sure about this? I said, yes, yes, I'm, I'm sure. So he, he gave a, a, a nice six-figure donation towards that. And uh, what that allowed us to do is the uh, money and resources that have been allocated towards paying those back taxes, we were able to put to, uh, to use elsewhere throughout the building for some renovations all throughout. So that, that really helped out. And he didn't ask for this. Uh, but uh, they renamed uh, the Scottish Rite Cathedral and the uh, Scottish Rite Lobby in his honor. Uh, the Scottish Rite had uh, moved out of the building back in 2006, uh, so they went ahead and renamed a few things for him. So, and I think that that's just one of those stories that you know illustrates one of the things I've been trying to illustrate through some of my interviews and on the podcast is. Again, that that connection between a or what what connections can exist between a Masonic temple and a larger community, um, you know, beyond uh, the very important, obviously, and, and kind of primary purpose of a meeting place for for Masons or Freemasons, you know, in this case, it's a place that has provided to the city of Detroit, uh, you know, employment opportunities, um, music opportunities. Uh, architectural heritage, uh, and, you know, significant revenue over the years from concerts, from events, you know, it's been, and even here in Windsor, the number of people who have traveled to Detroit, uh, hopefully we can do that again soon, to go to, you know, concerts at the Masonic Temple. Um, it just, it facilitates so much for a community, I think, um, these, these grand Masonic temples, like the Windsor Masonic Temple of Detroit, Philadelphia, um, uh, Hamilton, uh, Bay City. You know, I just think that that's something that is sometimes, you know, overlooked. Even if you're not a Mason, you probably have a connection to a Masonic temple or Masonic history somewhere. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and we hear that all the time, uh, particularly like on tours. It's like, yeah, I mean... Um... We uh, had my high school graduation here. Like, uh, I remember like coming to see Phantom of the Opera when I was a kid with my parents. Or, you know, I remember um, coming here as a uh, part of uh, like a play, things like that. It's like, and we, we hear a lot. I mean, yes. But, and, you know, more often than not, uh, they're typically non-Masons uh, who tell us uh, these histories. It's like, you know, I have such great memories of coming here when I was a kid. Or like, you know, this uh, provided like such a great focal point in my life that I still remember that. And. That really is like a, a great, it really is a great point in the fact that it kind of like is part of the overall fabric within uh, the community. And that was the idea behind that because they realized when they were building a building like this, like, yeah, I mean, we could just have this as a purely Masonic temple and nothing else. But, uh, you know, at the same time, we want to make this an overall part of the fabric of the community. We want this to be a lasting legacy. I mean, not just, you know, this very large building, you know, in uh, downtown Detroit, but also the fact that, you know, masonry seeks to be a part of the community. It seeks to be a pillar of uh, community life. I mean, it wants to be like um, tightly focused um, on that community. I mean, not just because the idea is not only to improve your own lives, but to improve the lives of those around you I mean, your community as a whole. So, I mean, and the Detroit Masonic Temple uh, in multiple ways uh, very much uh, fulfills that. Yeah, any, um, yeah, I, I agree completely. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say for myself, having taken both the, you know, I've been lucky enough to visit the Masonic Temple uh, as a Mason for a meeting, uh, visiting with Zion Lodge, but also, you know, as a member of the public, taking both the regular tour and the behind the scenes tour, both of which were amazing. Uh, you know, if somebody wants to take those tours, uh, I'll, I'll leave a link down in the, the description for this video and, and I'll pin a comment, but if you want to throw the information out there too quickly. Yeah, so um, what we typically do is uh, we have at least two regular tours per month. Those are usually on the first and third Sundays at 3 p.m. Uh, next month, because of Easter, we're going to have to switch to second and fourth, but uh, we'll be 
back to normal after that. Um, those tours, uh, usually we go 35 uh, participants per those tours, but right now with the, uh, with the uh, COVID restrictions, we're capped at 25. Um, those tours are $25 per person. Uh, the proceeds benefit the Detroit Masonic Temple Library, Archive and Research Center, and all the work that we're doing, uh, as well as the ongoing temple renova uh, renovations as well. Uh, tickets had to be purchased in advance. Uh, those tickets can uh, be purchased, or excuse me, purchased at the link provided. Um, the behind the scenes tours, we typically do every other month uh, on the uh, third and fourth Fridays, typically. Uh, those are at 7 p.m. Those tours um, are a little bit different uh, because of the areas uh, involved on the tour. Uh, those you have to be at least 18. Uh, also, because uh, for a few different reasons, uh, because we have to have the temple engineer on the tour, otherwise we wouldn't be able to tour the tour without him. And uh, because of the areas involved and because of the unique nature of them, those are a bit more. Those are $75 per person, but uh, same deal. Uh, the proceeds benefit the library and the temple renovations. We also do custom date tours as well uh, with a minimum of preferably one week's notice. And uh, depending on uh, availability, if I'm not available for whatever reason, I can get uh, with enough notice one of my other docents to cover it. Um, we uh, do custom date tours uh, to fit uh, unique schedules. Uh, we do have, uh, those are an additional charge. Uh, however, we do have rates available for uh, Masonic groups and uh, nonprofit organizations as well. So uh, again, if uh, you can't make one of the regular dates for whatever reason, that's an option too. And um, if uh, for more information, or if you wanna look at some dates at that, uh, you can call the library at uh, 313 832-7100, extension 227, uh, or you can email us directly at uh, dmtdocents at gmail.com. So, uh, D is in dog, M is in Mary, T is in toy, docents, D-O-C-E-N-T-S at gmail. So, uh, so yeah, if anyone wants more information or if they're looking at some potential dates, uh, those are the best ways to reach us. Uh from your perspective, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of will do this kind of lightning round. Uh, I'm thinking back to my times at the Masonic Temple, but uh, what is your? We'll start with the start with uh, some quick questions. What is your favorite room at the Masonic Temple, the Detroit Masonic Temple? Oh boy, that's exactly. I need to pick a favorite kid. Um, uh, I would say overall, out of all the rooms, I would have to go with the prelates apartment. Um, and again, this is, a, it's a tough choice, but um, I would go with that one. Um, not only because it's very unique in terms of its architecture, it's only one of two rooms in the building with the Romanesque architectural style, uh, but also too because of its like, its specific spiritual importance. Um, if you've ever been to the temple, you understand it's uh, it's kind of like a side room off to the uh, chapel or the commandery asylum on the third floor. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very spiritually profound room. Um, it's sometimes been used for like uh, prayer or guided meditation. Um, also because of its, um, some of the details in the room, uh, the building artisan, uh, Corrado Parducci, was very fond of this room and he wanted to have details that uh, specifically stood out. This is why you see um, the painting on the wall. It's all hand painted. There's still several coats of lacquer over it. So it still shines like, you know, over 90 years later. It also has some very uh, unique techniques. Uh, the, the, the pillars uh, are made out of plaster, but are designed to look like marble. That's a technique you don't see too often anymore. And you have like actual marble uh, from Parducci's hometown um, in the prelate's throne in the background. Um, so just the just the design of that room is just so unique in many aspects. There's a lot of very detail-oriented um, aspects of the room as well. So if uh, if I if somebody really told me, hey, you got to pick just one room out of 1,037, I would probably have to say I'd go with that one. Based on your experience uh, as a docent with the tours, uh, what would you say is the general public's um, are there any rooms that they take the most pictures in or what would you say is their, their favorite part of the tour, both the general tour and also the behind the scenes tour? Uh, as far as the general tours, uh, the rooms that typically get the most uh, wow factor usually are the commandery asylum or the chapel on the third floor because uh, just because, again, it's unique design. 
Um, it's uh, it's very much designed to look like an older Gothic uh, cathedral. Uh, also, uh, we get a lot of people uh, that really like the Corinthian room, uh, the Corinthian lounge room on the fourth floor. Um, it's uh, the most detailed I'd say out of all the rooms, the most ornate, uh, you know, Corinthian architecture uh, being typically the most uh, ornate of the uh, five classical orders that uh, that has a lot of extra bells and whistles in that room in terms of design. Uh, people usually like to linger in that room, take a few more photos. Um, as far as the behind the scenes tours, um, I'd probably say the rooms that uh, get the most uh, people looking at, uh, well, for one thing, the roof, uh, because it's just an amazing view. Whenever the weather permitting, we always like to incorporate that on those tours. It's 210 feet up. You get a great uh, panoramic view, like all of uh, downtown Detroit. You can see across the, uh, the river into Windsor. You can see areas uh, north and east and west uh, in Detroit from the temple. People really like that. Um, another thing too, and it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, again, because it's a behind the scenes tour, I mean, you see a lot of areas that are, um, are a lot less pretty and a lot more gritty, so to speak. Uh, people really like, uh, people really like the engine room, uh, because I mean, it's, uh, it's the lowest point in the temple. Um, it's a little loud, obviously, but I mean, there's a lot of fans that are going, there's a lot of pumps that are going, uh, the ejector well is down there. So people really think that this is, We've had a lot of people like actually after the tour tell us that that was that was the most interesting part of the tour. I mean, just to actually see like the, the literal guts of the building at work. So we've uh, we get a lot of comments on that. So and I gotta bring up uh, I gotta bring up uh, across the river the uh, beautiful Windsor Masonic Temple, which you've. Uh, you know, you've visited uh, many times. I've had the pleasure of sitting in lodge with you on many occasions. Uh, this year, so it's, it's my understanding is, um, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm incorrect, uh, the Detroit Masonic Temple, it was started in 1920, but finished in 1926. Correct. Yeah, so uh, our Masonic Temple, we started in, we purchased the land for the building in 1913. Um, but we didn't start building until 1921, and we opened officially January of 1922, because uh, we're obviously a much smaller temple than Detroit, but still one I'm very fond of, a beautiful temple. Uh, and this, so, so this year is its 100th anniversary. Um, if you want to talk a few moments, you know, about your times visiting our Masonic Temple and any memories you have of the building and just what you thought of it uh, coming over to visit. Yeah, um, yeah, the Winter Temple is, uh, as you mentioned, like uh, certainly a beautiful building. Um, I remember, uh, well, first and foremost, uh, the hospitality of, uh, of the brothers uh, when I first uh, joined. I uh, first started coming when I was a relatively young Mason, uh, not long after I was raised. Um, and uh, I first met uh, a lot of the brothers from uh, St. Andrew's Lodge. Uh, St. Andrew's uh, Lodge and Zion Lodge enjoy a sister relationship. Uh, we have another one with uh, Thistle Lodge in Amherstburg. Uh, we actually helped found that uh, lodge back in uh, 1801. Um, but I remember uh, specifically the lodge rooms too. Uh, just uh, the lodge rooms, obviously like uh, a lodge room in, uh, in the States compared to a lodge in Canada is gonna have some similarities, but also a few distinct uh, differences. So I remember too, like uh, I was really enamored with uh, the design uh, of the lodge rooms. Um, I also, I remember like that, uh, that staircase going upstairs. I always liked uh, walking up that one. That was really interesting as far as, uh, going up there that way. And, um, yeah, just, uh, just the design from the outside, uh, from the exterior, just, uh, the various, uh, the, the, the way that, uh, the, the design kind of correlates with the interior of the building as well. Uh, that, that was always interesting to me as well, because obviously, you know, the, the Detroit Masonic Temple, it has a lot of, uh, has a very grand exterior. There's a lot of uh, design details, uh, uh, you know, that correlate with that. But uh, but the the Windsor Masonic Temple too has a lot of um, it, it, it's a very distinct part of an overall whole. Uh, that um, that's a, it's it's very admirable the way that it was designed as far as that goes. So I I really it, it, it's a very I, and I would encourage um, all brothers. Um, when the situation allows, when the border reopens, uh, to definitely go and visit. Um, I tell brothers all the time uh, throughout lodges in Southeast Michigan and beyond. It's like, you know, if you've never, if you've never visited the Windsor Masonic Temple, I mean, if uh, you've never uh, seen a degree there, I mean, I would uh, definitely encourage you to do so. 
So, and I always do. So, speaking of degrees, uh, I understand you have one coming up uh, yourself, Worshipful Sir. What's what's going on with with uh, Zion Lodge? What type of events do you have uh, coming up in the future? Well, uh, this Wednesday, the twenty fourth, we have a Master Mason degree. Uh, it's uh, actually it's going to be the first one that I confer as a Master of the Lodge. So I'm a little nervous, uh, but I got a lot of good help and. Um, this is our first one in a little over two years. Uh, so uh, we've been practicing. I, I trust it's gonna go well. Uh, we are hoping uh, to do some form of anniversary event or dinner or something along those lines on um, April 24th. Uh, usually under normal circumstances, we have a, a festive board style dinner um, every time. And usually late April, sometimes it kind of extends into May. Um, we, we, we don't, it's not an actual festive board because, uh, non-Masons are present, but it is a, a dinner in the style of a festive board. It has the same layout, uh, the same program and all that. Um, we obviously couldn't do that last year. Uh, we're probably not going to do, uh, the full event this year, but we're going to do some form of that. So we're still in the discussion stages of that. Uh, we've got an honors dinner coming up in May. Um. We have uh, several events coming up at the Detroit Yacht Club. Uh, we've got a great relationship with them on Belle Isle, uh, where we do uh, outdoor style picnics. Uh, worked out great last year. We did one in June and one in August. Um, so those are um, those are some of the events we have coming up right now. Uh, we've got a couple of brothers still to raise yet. Uh, we've got a few left over. You know, last year that we when we wouldn't we weren't able to do Master Mason degrees last year for the most part. So we're uh, we're catching up on that again. But no, yeah, Zion is uh, going really well. Uh, we've uh, got a great young core of officers who are uh, very talented, not just in terms of ritual, but in terms of planning, uh, in terms of focus as well. So we're going through a strategic planning process right now. Uh, so that's uh, that's going really well. So the idea is to kind of uh, set the lodge up for future growth and development as well. Uh, we've got a lot of interest uh, from men uh, who are learning to become, uh, excuse me, wanting to know more about Freemasonry and potentially to join. Last October, we had a uh, candidates event, uh, a prospective members event, and uh, I was really pleasantly surprised. We had over 25 men show up. So it's kind of a nice problem to have. But uh, but no, those are uh, some of the things coming up in Zion Lodge. Uh, we'll uh, have at least one degree every month going into at least June and possibly beyond. So What, um, you know, that, that I think brings up and it, kind of the, I would say the main dilemma facing Masonic lodges and, and Masonic temples more in general, the, the grander ones, right? Is this idea of, um, you know, when, when the Windsor Masonic Temple was built, when Detroit was built, it was a time of pretty rapid expansion in the craft. Um, you know, the, 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 probably the most rapid expansion in the craft uh, maybe second only to 1950s. Uh, I know in Ontario, for example, uh, it was in the 1920s that we reached over 100,000 members. Um, so, you know, these Masonic temples, such as Windsor, Detroit, um, Bay City, uh, they were kind of built at a time when Freemasonry was, was growing very rapidly. Um, you know, I've talked to several brethren who were part of larger Masonic temples and are either in the process of, uh, you know, selling them or looking to considering selling them. I guess, you know, my question is from a, a you know, preserving these buildings perspective, do you think the emphasis needs to be on, you know, growing the craft to bring in more members to increase kind of revenue base or is it looking at outside partnerships more often and, um, you know, partnering with different entertainment groups or whatever it is, not ones that leave you holding the bag per se, but groups that will, um, you know, uh, more outside partnerships, you know, a private public space type of deal. You know, I talked to Daryl Babbock about this from Edmonton, which is their experience of the same dilemma. Now, I guess I, my question is, do you think that the Masonic craft can grow again to a sufficient level like it was in the 20s 
to sustain these Grand Masonic temples? Or do you think it's a combination of that plus partnering with outside groups? Like where, where do you see, um, or do you think it's possible to maintain these buildings at our current levels? Well, um, my personal Masonic philosophy, and uh, there's a great quote from uh, the Masonic author, H.L. Uh, Haywood, is that uh, we, we don't need more men in masonry, we need more masonry in men. As you mentioned, uh, there were several uh, levels of growth uh, throughout, uh, you know, both in Michigan and in Ontario uh, that kind of correlated uh, during different events um, in the, um, especially in Detroit area. In the late 19th century, as uh, Detroit began to grow, uh, we had a membership jump. Uh, and again, after World War II, or excuse me, World War I into the 20s, and again, after World War II into the late 40s, 1950s. So there were kind of external factors that kind of, uh, drove that growth. Um, and um, frankly, I think what happened is that you kind of had a uh, kind of you, you raised things to a point where it kind of kind of diluted the essence of the craft, so to speak. Um, a lot is kind of grew to the point where um, they kind of became artificially inflated at the point where it just wasn't going to be a sustainable level. I mean, uh, there were lodges uh, for a while um, in Southeast Michigan that uh, had uh, 2,000 and more members. Um, and, uh, and the problem is, is that, I mean, when you get into a level like that, you can't really like intimately know your brothers within a lodge like that. I mean, uh, you kind of became, uh, you kind of become a victim of your own success in several aspects. So I think overall the craft kind of became a victim of its own success in many ways. And, um, when you had membership levels level off, um, it's so it, it's not so much. I think that we need more men in masonry. Um, it, it's nice, but um, I think for one thing, we need to take care of the members that we have. Uh, we need to follow up with them, which is why we need robust mentorship and uh, education programs. Uh, which is why we need to make sure that every brother who comes into a lodge feels welcome, that he has a role to play, that his individual unique talents are going to. Uh, not only going to help the lodge, but are going to help him expand his own Masonic experience. Uh, I'm, I sometimes get in a little trouble when I say this, but uh, I, I'm a pretty big proponent of traditional observance masonry, smaller lodges, um, no more than a couple candidates a year at a time, uh, a very initiatic focus, uh, a focus on mentorship, a focus on education. Um, a focus on higher standards. Uh, that's kind of my traditional focus uh, as far as that goes. Uh, but um, as far as uh, the temples themselves, uh, well, specifically here in Detroit, uh, we're very heavily dependent on events typically, uh, which is why COVID has been uh, a unique challenge here. Uh, so traditionally, we uh, have uh, quite a few uh, concerts going on. AEG Entertainment uh, in March of 2019 uh, took over management, uh, not ownership, management of uh, our theater spaces. And they've done a really great job as far as renovating them. They put several million dollars into um, some much needed renovations of both theaters. And that's kind of been somewhat of, a, I won't call it a silver lining, it's more of a tin lining right now, uh, with uh, the theater spaces being uh, shut down for concerts, uh, a lot of the construction, a lot of the renovations has been able to be accelerated. Uh, so what ordinarily they had to plan around, you know, a couple concerts a week, I mean, this time they can just kind of like focus on the construction itself. So it'll get done a lot faster. And when we do open up for concerts again, that'll all be ready to go. So it's, uh, that's one okay thing to come out of this but uh corporate events have been a very um important re uh, revenue generator for us as well typically under normal circumstances we get several large-scale corporate events that uh take up a great deal of the uh spaces all throughout the building um usually the society of automotive engineers is here all the time quicken is here quite frequently uh forbes uh did a very large event here back in october of 2019 that again uh, took up uh, most of the building in terms of the public spaces masonic spaces as well uh so things like that are very important from us in terms of a revenue standpoint weddings are important uh the temple has frequently been in uh, the top wedding destination list in uh, metro detroit uh, quite often under normal circumstances we have a wedding here uh, usually every saturday so that uh, goes well. So overall, 
Um, in terms of the older temples, I think what they're going to have to do is just uh, come up with um, partnerships that are going to be able to uh, preserve them uh, going into uh, the future. Uh, obviously, you had to be careful with who you talk to, I mean, who you work with here for the most part as well. But um, ultimately, if they want to keep it in terms of a Masonic space, I mean, they're going to have to uh, kind of break, they're going to have to be willing to break paradigms, so to speak. They're going to have to be willing to tread new ground as far as that goes. And obviously, you have to respect the Masonic aspect of that space, but uh, they're definitely going to have to be willing to kind of, uh, actually don't use this term, kind of think outside the box, so to speak. So. Yeah, thinking outside the box is one of those things that uh, Masons are not always the best at, but, you know, it, it strikes me as being uh, probably a pretty important to start thinking about some of these paradigm shifts as we, as we move forward. Uh, from a, you know, as, as a worshipful master, um, you know, both, both last year and this year, I guess, how do you, um, how have you tried to be a worshipful master or how have you found it being different to be a worshipful master or just a lodge operating during the time of COVID um, with, you know, so many of our, I know you mentioned you had the younger group of officers, but so many of our demographics do skew older in terms of membership to more vulnerable populations. I guess just how, what type of unique challenges has both the Detroit Masonic Temple and your lodge faced uh, during the last couple of years? Well, um, well last year in particular, uh, we wanted to, uh, and many lodges uh, did similar things as well, is that we wanted to make sure that our members were taken care of. Uh, so we made uh, a point to make sure to contact members to make sure that uh, let them know is that if there's something they needed from the lodge, uh, you know, please, I mean, don't hesitate to let us know because I think sometimes there are brothers that uh, you know they, their their pride kind of inhibits them from reaching out and admitting like hey I might need some additional assistance uh, so we want to make sure like look you know you know brothers don't don't let that stigma get in the way I mean if you need some help reach out to us let us know we will do everything we can to uh, fulfill our Masonic obligations provide the assistance that um, that binds us with that cable toe um, as far as, uh, far as unique challenges, uh, obviously a lot of uh, initial things that we had planned in terms of events uh, basically had to uh, not happen last year, uh, but uh, we kind of refocused on uh, just uh, kind of internal communications in terms of, uh, you know, obviously, you know, planning for future events, uh, doing strategic planning, the process that we're on right now, and also just uh, getting to know each other better. Uh, because I think a lot of times, um, it, it happens, you know, you, you show up to lodge, you do a degree, you have a meeting, uh, you have a bite to eat, and uh, you kind of uh, go on your way. Uh, so we're trying to avoid that. Uh, we're trying to actually get to know each other in terms of on a more intimate basis. Uh, we're trying to really uh, kind of like, you know, sit down and get to know our brothers on a personal level, which, you know, which we should do. But, you know, we're actually trying to put that in practice. Um, so as far as that goes, uh, so in terms of uh, our overall demographics are kind of shifting as well. I mean, originally we had, um, this is a while ago, we had uh, more young families in the lodge and whatnot. Uh, we really don't so much anymore. Uh, our lodge is uh, not rapidly aging, but it is getting a bit older. I mean, we do have some younger professionals within our lodge. Uh, we do, uh, our our median age in terms of our, I'd say going back the last five years in terms of our uh, new candidates has uh, probably been about uh, 30 to 35. So not really young, but uh, younger. Uh, so again, we kind of have to kind of model our lodge uh, on something that uh, best benefits our brothers, uh, best benefits our newer members, while uh, kind of keeping in mind the fact that we do have uh, a lot of older brothers as well. So it's kind of a uh, this is kind of something I found as a master. You kind of have to balance uh, interests in terms of uh, your different demographics, uh, your different uh, social standpoints from all your brothers and try to, uh, you don't want to do a one size fits all approach, but at the same time, you want to uh, do things that uh, are going to appeal to everyone as well. Uh, the other thing too, in terms of uh, community outreach as well, uh, we, uh, we, we, what we do as far as a charity, uh, we do a ramp program where we build ramps uh, for wheelchair ramps for uh, people in need. And that's uh, not only has it been really great to help them out, but it's uh, also been really good PR for the lot as well. So that gets us out there. Um, 
And another thing too, is that uh, in terms of the temple, uh, unfortunately, uh, for a while, uh, it kind of had this uh, kind of this clubhouse meets bunker type mentality. Uh, the neighborhood around the temple uh, kind of went downhill uh, beginning in like the 1960s into the 1970s. So um, rather than kind of uh, see what they could be done to kind of influence like positive social change, they kind of uh, hunkered down and uh, really didn't do much in terms of the overall community. Uh, the lodges kind of became uh, more like commuter style lodges. Um, it's changed somewhat. I mean, we have a lot more residents from the city within our lodges now, especially within Zion, but for a while we didn't. Um, it was primarily suburban. Um, they didn't really do a whole lot in terms of overall uh, local community uh, interaction and outreach and whatnot, but uh, that's something we're looking to change. Uh, we're looking to establish uh, relationships with uh, Detroit-based uh, institutions, Detroit-based charities. Another thing too that's really come along too is that, um, well, at least for Zion Lodge, uh, we have a really great robust relationship uh, with a local Prince Hall affiliated lodge as well. Uh, we do frequent intervisitation. Uh, inter uh, the Prince Hall brothers come and visit us quite frequently. They take parts in our degrees. So that's uh, that's been a really great positive development, so. Yeah, the the kind of connection or what you're talking about i i do um you know i do wonder about that i don't have any research myself on it but that is a really interesting kind of point the city versus suburban versus kind of rural um divides or differentiate you know are we seeing um with these masonic temples especially ones located like in the heart of a city are we seeing a lot of, as you said, commuter masons coming in, or are we seeing growth within the city? That'd be a really interesting thing to go into more. I wonder. I wonder about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. In terms of demographics, I know um, um, in Michigan in particular. I mean, we have many strong rural lodges uh, that have just been uh, mainstays of the community for uh, quite some time that are uh, holding their own in terms of uh, membership, in terms of uh, overall community involvement, in terms of membership development as well. Um, I belong to, um, I, I hesitate to call it a rural lodge. It's uh, kind of more of a small town lodge, uh, Myrtle Lodge number 89 in Belleville. And uh, they meet in uh, the oldest continually operating uh, purpose-built Masonic temple in the um, in the state of Michigan. It was originally built in, I believe, 1859. And so that's different. I mean, they 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 do active community involvement, uh, and uh, we have members uh, who may not make it to lodge very often, but uh, the lodge is very much near and dear to them. Uh, so that goes too. Um, yeah, that, that really would be in terms of uh, development, in terms of like uh, the, the, the interrelationship between how it affects like urban, suburban, and rural lodges as well. I mean, um, I personally, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of an outlier. I'm, uh, I'm an active member in five different lodges. Uh, two of them are urban. Um, uh, two of them, I guess you could call suburban and one you could call semi-rural. So it's always interesting to see like the unique challenges, unique demographics that uh, face those lodges in terms of their location, in terms of their overall makeup and external factors as well. So, Yeah, that would be an interesting, that'd be a very uh, interesting kind of piece of research. I mean, just even something like commute times would be fascinating. How long does the average Mason have to travel to get to his Masonic temple or Masonic lodge? I mean, does having a Masonic temple in the city, does that act as, as advertising or, or, or not? You know, if somebody passes it by every day, are they more likely to be interested in joining? Or are you seeing people driving, you know, half an hour to an hour to get to lodge? It'd be, it'd be, a, neat, be a neat question. I would just be interested even in the average commute time back and forth. Yeah, yeah, and, and in terms of uh, overall visibility as well, and it's um, I think it's it's important that uh, Masonic temples uh, kind of keep them up in terms of uh, overall uh, image, overall visibility. I mean, I don't want to say anything. I mean, obviously, I mean, in terms of like a temple that's being kept up, in terms of being well maintained, um, in terms of a temple that uh, may need some external attention, that kind of. Uh, it, it correlates in terms of like possibly like a prospective candidate. I mean, their overall impression of uh, Mason. 
obviously the Detroit Masonic Temple. I mean, you can't miss it. I mean, it takes up an entire city block. It's this big grand castle looking monument. Um, but uh, I mean, there's other temples in other areas as well. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, what they can do to keep up their overall image and visibility. I mean, whether that's a little bit of lipstick and rouge, uh, whether that's a little bit of like, you know, external improvements, you know, just uh, you know, making sure the, the property is kept up, you know, making sure the lawn's mowed, I mean, making sure the parking lot looks decent and you know, little things like that. Um, but, um, but no, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's always important to keep a good public face that as well. So. Yeah. And that it's stuff like that is cool. I wonder, I don't know if there's been enough research in some of those kind of more socio-demographic. You know, I've, I've, I've been to some talks about, uh, you know, millennials and, and Freemasonry and now Gen Z and Freemasonry, but the actual kind of nuts and bolts of, you know, is there is there a radius at which people kind of stop being interested in Freemasonry? So, you know, is, is there like a, a, a bell curve where, People will travel one hour, but if you go out hour and fifty minutes, it just drops rapidly. Or is there, um, uh, you know, what about is there an income gap? Are we seeing masons only with a certain income level join? Or, you know, I'm, I just wonder. Even you know, what age are they when they first join? Versus, is there an age at which attendance drops off and comes back? I don't know if there's been a lot of kind of nuts and bolts demographic research done. It seems like it's all been kind of general general stuff on quote-unquote gen z uh, millennials but not no specific numbers to really sink the teeth into yeah i know um i'm not sure if this is still the case but uh for a while uh the masonic service association of north america uh kept uh statistics and whatnot for a while they uh, looked at uh, all the uh, grand lodges throughout north america and tried to uh Kind of keep up those statistics as well and uh, kind of see growth patterns in terms of demographics in terms of uh, societal changes i'm not offhand i'm not quite sure how detailed uh the statistics were and how far the research went but uh they they might still do something like that i, I i'm not sure exactly uh but no yeah i agree i mean it would definitely be uh really interesting to see like the overall uh you know just in terms of like a radius like how far people are willing to travel uh, in terms of like the overall makeup, in terms of uh, membership statistics, so yeah, that's uh, I might um, I'm uh, I'm secretary at the Michigan Lodge of Research, so I might uh, I might put uh, I might put a bug in the ear of uh, our brothers uh, who have a background in statistics, demographics, and whatnot. Uh, see if they might want to take a look at that as far as research. Uh, I, I'd be interested to see those results as well. Well, if you get those results, please send them to me, and you can even throw a uh, throw something down in the comments uh, about that would be very cool. Uh, and speaking of, I'll do my typical plugs, which I never do. So they're not typical at all, but I'm supposed to do them. Hit the like button, comment, subscribe. Give me money on Patreon if you want to do that. And uh, you can go to, uh, if you want to, if you prefer just the audio, you can find Sprung Compass on uh, Podbean, Spotify, iTunes. All that good stuff. Uh, from your neck of the woods, uh, I know you mentioned before, but one more time, because everybody who can uh, uh, really, Mason or non-Mason, really should do what they can to visit the Detroit Masonic Temple and, and take part in those tours and, and step inside really a historical treasure uh, of our area. So just one more time, if you wanna throw the quick plugs in for the tours, uh, you know, the, the website and phone numbers uh, and anything else you, you want to plug coming up in, in either your lodge or Freemasonry or the temple in general. Yeah, uh, yeah, brothers, it's, uh, I'm a little biased, but uh, the Detroit Masonic Temple is something that really every Mason should see at least once. Um, it is definitely uh, top five in terms of uh, enduring Masonic monuments, um, just, just, just the amazing amount of uh, the history and architecture in the, in the temple is enough for uh, all Masons and uh, non-Masons in general to see as well. Uh, websites coming uh, for the library. In the meantime, uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, Detroit Masonic Temple Library Archive and Research Center. That has a link to all our happenings, all the uh, ticket links for tours. Um, again, tours typically happen um, every first and third uh, Sunday of the month. 
Uh, during the summer months, uh, we typically move those to uh, Friday evenings. It's a little bit cooler at the temple uh, during the evening, uh, during those times. Um, also, uh, for Zion Lodge, you can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, our website is uh, zion1764.com. Uh, you can find us there, and that's being updated as well. Uh, so, yeah, brothers uh, and uh, non-Masons, it's uh, definitely worth checking out the world's largest Masonic temple. Uh, it is uh, truly a sight to behold. And with that, you'll find those links in the description to this video also. Worshipful Brother Rob Moore, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to see you over Zoom and knock on wood. Uh, it'll be in person again before too long. Yeah, Brother Cameron, uh, thank you so much for having me on this afternoon. I've uh, been a long time a watcher of the podcast, and it's great to finally be a guest. Um, yeah, and uh, hopefully uh, when the border uh, eventually gets reopened, I would uh, love to come back to the beautiful Windsor Masonic Temple and uh, see you and uh, all the brothers of uh, the various lodges that meet there. Uh, it's uh, love to get back there as soon as I can do so.